Hey everybody, Dylan here. Before we start the show, I just want to remind you to uh, subscribe to us on iTunes, comment, review the show. Those help us out a lot. Email, you can always email me, dylan at theletsgoeatshow.com. Write to us on Facebook, Twitter, uh, suggestions of guests, places you'd like us to eat, to tell us we suck. Don't do that one. Anyway, do all that other stuff. Uh, Here's the show. This is the post-interview moment where I'm usually too tired to really think of an intro for the Let's Go Eat show because I've just actually interviewed the guest and I'm really tired. And uh, I know it, it doesn't seem like that should make you tired, but it, but it does make you tired because you have to keep your brain kind of really engaged in uh, what the person is saying to you, uh, questions that you might want to ask. You're always uh, kind of saying to yourself, is this really going very well? Is it going in a good direction? Is this an interesting story that's being told here? And it, all of that activity in your brain, uh, plus you're eating some food because this is the Let's Go Eat show after all. Uh, you're eating some food. That makes you kind of tired. Anyway, we just concluded an interview with Geraldine Dreyfus, and, uh, and I'm too tired to even think about how to intro her. She's an Academy Award winner for uh, a movie, a documentary that you, I would hope you'd heard of called Born into Brothels. Uh, She has produced dozens and dozens and dozens of documentary films, uh, many of which you will have heard of. Uh, Most recently, The Hunting Ground, for instance, uh, a very acclaimed documentary about um, uh, sexual assault on college campuses. She's done uh, Prophet's Prey. Uh, Amy Berg directed that about uh, Warren Jeffs and uh, his molestation of uh, young girls down there in the uh, polygamous compound in uh, Hilldale in Colorado City. Uh, Geraldine Dreyfus was one of the, uh, well, she was the executive producer of that particular documentary. Uh, She's done so much. As you will hear in this episode of the Let's Go Eat show, Thanks to Dylan Allred for producing the show. Thanks to the Cafe at 50 West for uh, the food and a table space to record the interview. And now, without further ado, other than to say, I'm really tired now, our guest, Geraldine Dreyfus. I can hear you. You know, I, uh, I saw you at the Tumbleweeds Film Festival and I went, oh, I've never talked to Geraldine Dreyfus. That was fun. Yeah. That festival's really taken off. My, my kids love it. They were so thrilled to see um, the Goonies. <laughs> now, my son, who was 16, had seen it before. My daughter, who was 11, and she sat there and just went and thought it was the greatest thing in the world. And I watched it, and, and I thought, well, I remember seeing this now because I was an adult when I saw it. Right. And really didn't like it very much then or now. But well, you saw it through her eyes, so yeah, that's fun. that was good. Yeah. That's fun. Yeah. I think a lot of people in my generation love the Goonies, but I think it has a lot to do with like how old you are either when it, the first time you saw it. Um, so, it, you know, when did it come out? Um, 80s? 80s. I would say the 80s, like mid-80s. Yeah, it'd have to be. Cindy Lauper was very popular at the time. I think it was like 86 or something. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So people a little older than me. It's like their favorite movie, people who were like six years old in 1986. And when you're six, I, you don't really have a lot of taste. I, I think true. Your brain has hardly been developed. You're just dumb. <laughs> uh, Geraldine Dreyfus, our guest on the Let's Go Eat show. And let's see, I'm trying to, I was looking at the list and trying to think you're the, um, yeah, the first Academy Award winner. We've ever had on the Let's Go. I think the first. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. Well, I was try- looking through the list of, and I said to myself, you know, no, Rocky Anderson didn't win an Academy Award. No. <laughs> did uh, so. eight? Did the eight? The Mormon proposition. Did Reed win an award? In a no. 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 Reed no. Cowan did not w- win. A- so then, yeah. No. So you're the first. Uh, Trent, and thanks, Trent Harris, no. Trent no, Harris, no, no, has never won an Academy no. Award. Okay, I think so. Yeah, first one. Have you ever seen a Trent Harris film? Well, absolutely, and I'm looking. We're going to be uh, screening the Beaver trilogy. Um, I think next week or in the in by the end of the month. The at the Utah Film Center. Yeah. Uh, uh, please, uh, f- let's find out the exact date of that. I will talk that up on the radio uh, from here to there because it's. 
it's just absolutely an incredible experience, the Beaver Trilogy by Trent Harris. No, he's incredible. I know. I just um, uh, spent my, was it last Saturday or the Saturday before, uh, working on a new movie with Trent Harris. And just I've been in two, two of his movies now. And, and it's, you know, whether anybody ever sees them or not, I don't care. It's just fun to be with him and work with him. And But he has a great following. So they, the people do see the movies, which is fun. Yeah. yeah. Uh, Geraldine Dreyfus, uh, I, well, you know, we could go on and on. Um, an Academy Award winner, um, distinguished background in the arts, extensive experience in consulting in the Philanthropic Center. Uh, participates numerous boards and initiatives. You read through your curriculum vitae and you think, I don't know where you find the time or the energy to do it all. Uh, but um, you founded the Utah Film Center. That's correct. Uh, you also uh, work with Impact Partners. Impact Partners. And then there was another one that I had not. Uh, Game Changer Films. Game Changer Films. It's a new fun for women directors in the feature space. Just a lot of fun. So, as you read about Geraldine Dreyfus, you grew up in uh, Massachusetts, Massachusetts, in Boston. Went to Harvard, sociologist. I would assume always had kind of an interest in film, but that was not your trajectory, right? No, my interest was really in politics and sort of social justice and social innovations and got interested in film because I was working on a magazine called Double Take with a wonderful professor of mine named Robert Coles. And he really kind of introduced me to this idea of narrative nonfiction, moral imagination, field-based learning, all the things that happen when you roll up your sleeves and you kind of try to document something in the nonfiction space, either as a writer or a filmmaker. And that's how I got interested in film. So uh, you got interested in film. Uh, You didn't go out and start making films yourself, though. No, what happened was I moved out here, and I was—I uh, got involved with uh, Sundance as an advisor and what was then called their House of Doc. Nicole Guillaume was very committed to supporting documentary filmmakers. You know, 25 years ago, they were the stepchild of every festival. Um, and I just remember this historic moment when Redford was there, and he said, we're going to create a platform for documentary filmmakers like we have for independent filmmakers and he has now mm-hmm. you know they're kissing cousins hardly stepchildren and nobody knows the difference when you're talking about films you're not talking about i saw this great doc you're talking about the film yeah and it's exciting uh it, it is true that uh, documentary films have assumed more of a, a prominence in people's um in people's minds but it's still a different world isn't it when you're talking about hollywood and you know, people who come out to the Sundance Film Festival to make deals on films that they think are going to be big money makers. Documentary films are not necessarily big money makers, are they? No, you can't make money in documentary films because they cost more to make than you, the market will pay for. So they always require a subsidy, whether that's uh, deferred debt by the filmmaker or um, philanthropic grants. Um, okay. But you can put equity into documentaries because. Um, Documentaries are actually a safer bet than independent films. What do you mean you can put equity into them? So our film fund um, impact partners, we put equity. We, we, we actually make an investment in the film, and we expect our money back plus 15% upon the sale and over the life of the film. Um, so we don't make a lot of money. And, in fact, you know some of our films don't make money, and mm-hmm. some of them do. So we have... a. Right now, we have like an 89 cents on the dollar return to our investment, which is basically breaking even. And our investors are thrilled because they get their money back and they put it into a film. So our films are not making money. We're standing on the shoulders of the last film we funded that did well. So instead of thanking us, you should thank Lucy Walker for Crash Reel or you should thank... Amy Ziering and Kirby Dick for The Hunting Ground because that money returned allowed us to do Audrey and Daisy and The Eagle Huntress, which we sold at Sundance this year. Which will make money. Yeah. Those two, those two films actually were big sales, and mm-hmm. uh, The Eagle Huntress is going to be huge. I didn't get a chance to see it, but, gee, I, just, I looked uh, over that promotional piece that was done for it, that little booklet. Mm. I don't know if you guys put, who put, whoever put that together. Yeah, the director and film team did. Yeah, yeah. beautifully done. And, yeah, well, the um, photography. I mean, the film is all about the cinematography, and then it was discovered by a BBC photographer by posting the photos online, and mm. the director is like, oh, there's a story there. I'm going to go see uh, it. How, did, did, you never, did you never think that you wanted to make these films yourself? Or just... 
You know, it's an interesting question because I, I, I think in order to be a director, you have to tell a story that you can't not tell. It's sort of like Alice Walker says, you know, these people, they move into your your living room upstairs and they won't leave until you get them out on the page. And I haven't found that story for myself yet. I've certainly, um, of all the films that we've financed and we've financed over 80 of them now, only two of them were my ideas. Everybody else comes to me with a good idea and you're like, oh, that's a good idea. We better pay attention to Which that. Which two were your ideas? So The Day My God Died, which was the first film um, that I made with Andy Levine, who lives here in Utah, which was about the sex slave trade between Nepal and India, where young girls were being sold into prostitution. Um, and the second idea was doing a film about John Huntsman when he, when he went to China and trying to explore the U.S.-Chinese um, diplomacy. The now, I read, I read something about that, and there was something about um, he was going to ride a motorcycle along the Great Wall of China or along the yeah. border. Did he do it? Oh, yeah. And, and the other thing that we, we – um, uh, what's the great American motorcycle company? Harley. Harley was opening um, a shop in North Korea on the North Korean-Chinese border, and he was going to, like, ride his motorcycle up for us for film. And then mm-hmm. we couldn't land because it was, like – all the lights went out in North Korea, and there was, like, bad weather. So we actually couldn't shoot it, but I thought that was such a great visual to have John. Because we opened the film with John leaving the governor's mansion and riding his Harley with the police escort and the jazz bear um, with the hair flying, yeah. going down to the Harley um, uh, headquarters uh, in, I guess, it's Layton, right? Or uh, it's right, uh, Linden. Uh, right? Down in Linden. Yeah, yeah. down in Linden. Yeah. Um, where he was basically doing a ride for fallen police officers. That mm-hmm. was one of the last things he oh, did yeah. two days before he left. So we filmed that, and that's kind of our one of, in our opening scene of the film. You know, we just got some food here at 50 West uh, at the, where we're recording this interview with Geraldine Dreyfus, and uh, you ordered soup. Yes. And it's going gonna, it's gonna to get cold if you don't start eating it. Now, how do you feel about eating while talking? I'm fine. You're long, fine with that? I'm fine because it's soup, so yes. I won't be chewing. I'll no. be slurping. Yeah, so uh, we'll just keep recording if you're fine with yeah. it. Yeah, sure. Um, it's delicious, by the way. Now, where can uh, where can um, people you know, films like that where you think, oh, John Huntsman riding a Harley in China? I'd really like to see that. Right. How do people see films like that? So still? we just premiered the film at Tribeca, and we haven't sold it yet. We've, we're we're still on the festival circuit. We're still looking for a sale. We're hoping either public television or. Um, you know, a, broad, a U.S. broadcaster. We've had some interest um, outside of the United States, and I think it's a natural for Netflix too. So we're, mm-hmm. you know, we're we're exploring our distribution op- options right now. Does that do do films that you've made? And I mean, there's a huge list on your IMDb IMDb page, and I I don't know. I, I was going to count them and then didn't, but there must be forty films there that you've helped finance mm-hmm. and produce. Uh, some of them, as a lot of things that happen at Sundance, must just get lost. Right. They they sort of never see the light of day. Does that uh, frustrate you? And, and what do you do? Is there anything you can do about that? Well, it is frustrating. Um, but there's so many new platforms to self-distribute now, whether it's this you know video on demand um, or you can work with organizations like Tug and Gather and aggregate your own audience and do your own theatrical. Where basically if, if uh, you hire this company and they go into zip codes and partner with local organizations that are connected to the content of the film, once 40 tickets are sold, the film is greenlit in the sense that it will be booked at the tower or booked at some local theater. And then it's, you know, it's all got the technology where it's sent out on social media and to your email saying, here's where the film's playing, here's the time, you bought the ticket bring some friends so that's pretty cool that didn't exist five years ago you were um, y- you were lucky in, uh, uh, not lucky and uh, I, I don't mean lucky that uh, uh, that uh, the work that went into born in in brothels in the brothels was not great work but that you hit you you had lightning strike right at the beginning of your career essentially your Absolutely. career as a producer um, you win an Academy Award. Must have been just absolutely overwhelming for you to, to have that happen so early on. And I mean, that's not that long ago, really, in the great scheme of things. Was that two thousand and three or four? Yeah. yeah. 
Uh, so you you win an Academy Award, um, one of the very like the second film you were yeah, involved with. Yeah, Day My God Die was the first, and then Born into Brothels. What talk, talk so about that, that experience? Yeah, how did that? How well, did that come about? How did that film come about? And it's- well, it was interesting because we were making The Day My God Died in, um, and we were shooting in Calcutta. And there was this remarkable photographer um, named Zana Brisky who had been documenting the lives of sex workers in the same district that we were kind of tracking the slave trade. And we met a social worker who showed me some of her pictures. And very selfishly, I thought, oh, my God, I have to meet this woman because we could use these photos in the film. Um, at the same time, uh, she she wasn't there when I was there. It was Holy Week. She had gone. She was like living six months in Calcutta, going back to New York to try to fundraise. So we then premiered the day my God died at Tribeca, and she came to the premiere. And we had a lot of mutual friends. And when I sat down and and saw her work and the photographs of the children, I brought them back to Robert Coles, who was my mentor at Double Taken at Harvard. And he said, boy, there's a story there. I mean, it was really the story of the kids and how do they navigate this life. So let's uh, so the the kids in that life for people who don't know the story, Mm -hmm. uh, it's a it's a children of prostitutes in Calcutta. That's right. And the and the kids are actually born while their mothers are working in That's right. In and some brothels. of them are chained under the beds while their mothers are forced to have sex and some of them are just living around it and some of them are recruited into the into what they call the line if they're girls or then they become, you know, mm-hmm. f- work at mini bars for if they're boys or they're fetching errands. Um, but they're pretty much owned by the brothel owners. Yeah. The kids um, are considered property of the of the the sex workers. Yeah. So at any rate. So at any rate, we, you know, we saw these photographs and and what Coles said was, and Coles was a pioneer. I mean, he and Anna Freud were the first psychiatrists to actually use drawing for children to sort of um, diagnose and understand their trauma. So it turns out there's a part of your brain that you can't speak about bad things that have happened to you, especially when you're young, but you can draw them and you can tell the story of what the figures in the drawings are. And he also then applied that to cameras. If you give kids cameras and say, document your life, and then you come back and you say, tell me the pictures behind this. Tell me the stories behind these pictures, which is essentially what Zana did without even knowing it. She taught them photography. They showed us their lives in color, and there was great beauty in all of the brokenness that they lived in, whereas Zana was, you know, really photographing the very dark alleyways and conditions of the sex workers. And it was a story about a great teacher sharing her craft and these amazing students that taught her how to see, you know, so it was this kind of there was a reciprocity and a generosity in the film. And once we figured out really through a Sundance lab that the vessel for telling that story was to watch these children's portfolios unfold so that you saw them taking the pictures and you saw them explaining the pictures and you saw the resilience of those pictures and the resilience of their lives, you didn't have to tell a linear story. You were just kind of in the middle of you, you, you felt just like it was paint the whole picture. I felt like it was time lapse photography. It was like developing before your eyes, and the kids were narrating it, and it made it really great, and it made it easy for us to remember which kids were which, because when you have eight characters in a film and they're Indian and speaking another language, it's hard for Western audiences to rem- follow. But because it was a portfolio of work, you remembered, you know, Avajit's work. It stood out in a certain way. You remembered Pooja's work, mm-hmm. and then you start. They became, you know, dear to you as yeah. as people and characters that you followed. So. So the film, you get it, you put it all together, you workshop it at Sundance, you put it together, and um, uh, it, and did it first get shown at the, at, at Sundance? Yeah, we had a yeah. we had our premiere at Sundance. It was done two days beforehand. I'll never forget it because Al Gore and Tipper Gore were at the screening, and Tipper Gore is a great photographer and cares about photography, so she wanted to see the film. And I was sitting next to Zana Brisky's mother, who you have. If I could, I'll just give you a visual. She's um, Iraqi, Jewish, was a flight attendant that then emigrated to Canada. And so Zana grew up in Canada, and then she got her divinity degree at Cambridge in um, comparative religions. Um, but she was really, her love is animals and um, the protection of animals. So she happened to be in a t- Tibetan monastery in India studying um, when she got a call that her photography about women 
which she had become a photographer. She left Divinity School, went to ICP uh, in New York, started working as a freelance photographer. And her, her work was on a display with WHO, World Health Organization, in Calcutta. And she's thinking, well, when in the world am I ever going to be in India again? I'm going to go see the exhibit. So it's like one of those road to Wigan Pier stories where you go down yeah. and then all of a sudden you <laughs> s- discover the alleyway that leads to the brothel and you're stopped in your tracks and she moves in, right? Yeah. But her mother didn't know anything about this. So I'm sitting next to her mother who's like an Iraqi Jewish Ava Perone in a fake Chanel suit with a yeah. buff, you know, the big very hair, proper. the big hair, yeah. very proper. And she, her, she had told her mother that she had been photographing wildlife in India, which was not telling a lie, but it wasn't the wildlife that her mother had in mind. Yeah. So between her mother almost having a heart attack and then Al Gore and Tipper Gore like standing up and pronouncing it the best film of Sundance, it just kind of took off from there. And um, it was that day, that screening, where an, a, a, an audience member said, it looks like education is really the problem. These kids are... They're penalized because they're from a, a lower caste and they cannot get access to education. And we said, yes, that's right. And they said, well, have you ever thought about opening a school? And Zana said, well, actually, I have. And so he's like, well, I'll give you the first $50,000. And so all of a sudden we were in the business of making a school, which we're almost finished with 14 hope, years later. Hope, hope House. Hope, hope House. house. Yeah. So we're almost finished. We have about $200,000 of $1.7 million. That we we raised one point five of one point seven, and it's three quarters of the way built. And is this wow. is this an apocryphal story, or is it, is there something about a deathbed uh, promise oh, to Mother Teresa no, about this? It's absolutely true. So our partner, the reason why I was in Calcutta was because of a remarkable woman named Bonnie Long, whose father um, started Mission of Mercies. Which he was a Protestant. Um, missionary and she grew up in Calcutta and he grew up with Mother Teresa. They, they divided up the city. They were like, okay, you take the death and dying. I'll take the unmed women. You know, you take the, what they called cripples. I'll take the lepers. And their strategy was, is if we can show the poorest of the poor, God's grace, then we can bring down the caste system. And I had never really thought about grace before. You know, I mean, I'm thinking, you know, what's so amazing about grace? Well, what's so amazing about it is it's a radical idea that you can be anything and you're all a child of God and you should be, you have, you know, it's your job to become the person that you're supposed to be as opposed to be assigned to your caste and be reincarnated if you're lucky into a different life. Mm -hmm. So um, Mother Teresa uh, was one of Bonnie's, you know, Bonnie grew up at the hems of her skirt and she, her husband, who was also the son of an Indian missionary, um, uh, Dr. Long, was one of the inventors of a valve for an artificial heart. And so he was at the LDS hospital here. They, he oversees the Mission of Mercy's hospital, and he was Mother Teresa's doctor. And she died of, of a heart. You know, she died. Yeah. She had heart complications. So she made them promise that, and I mean, really, her dying words to them were, the girls, the sex slaves, the child prostitutes, they are the lepers of the 21st century. And we need to show them God's, God's grace. And we'll finally bring down the caste system. So Bonnie made the promise. And then when she met me and we were doing this, she'd never been to the, prosti- she'd never been to the red light district. But yeah. because she was helping me as a kind of a liaison, she was, you know, she told me her promise to Mother Teresa. And then when we did Boner to Brothels and they wanted to do a school, Bonnie's family's done 120 schools in India and 16 hospitals. So they became our partner on the ground to build this Hope House. It was just taken longer than we thought. And there's been changes of government and changes of zoning laws. Well, I think it's remarkable, though. It, <clears throat> it has taken a long time, but... It's still going to happen. But you, But nobody abandoned it. And no. that's what I think is... No, it is. I mean, it had some fits and starts. We had to have new, you know, new general managers. And then what happened, sadly, is that we, we had this amazing architect that designed a, a facility that had a screening room on the rooftop. And it was all open open floors so the breeze could come through and cross-ventilate. And there's a pond and a garden. And it's, it's incredible. But then because so many girls are being trafficked and kidnapped, the government made us close the windows close the hallways and put bars on them for safety. So we had to change the architectural design based on things that were out of our control. Um, And, you know, it's still going to be beautiful. It's not going to be quite quite the space that we had imagined, but we had to make those accommodations. So you win an Academy Award. Maybe uh, it would be interesting to us for you to walk us through how that happened. You were a hit at Sundance. 
And then how soon after that were you nominated? So the next year. So what happened was we, we released our film with Think Films. It was in theaters. It did well in theaters by documentary standards. It did $4 million in sales. It won lots of awards. We traveled around the country with the children's artwork. We raised over $250,000 for the kids' education. People were seeing this as sort of a social impact film before we had come up with the language of what that meant. Mm-hmm. Um, so, uh, And we were lucky. We were lucky because um, the next year documentaries went up against March of the Penguins and the next year they went up against Inconvenient Truth, right? So Both both re- both great documentaries. All great and, films, yeah. all great films. So we were lucky. We had strong candidates. We were up against Morgan Spurlock's um, Super Size Me, which was the kind of Good. the front runner in the, yeah. from a box a office. Huge, per- mm-hmm. um, but, you know, I think that the there was something that stayed with people on the artistic side of Born into Brothels mm-hmm. that was just so highly crafted that we, we you know, the voters... Um, voted voted us in. So you're so you're no, you're you're um, um, notified that you've been nominated for an Academy Award. Right. It's very exciting. Uh, and, and do then, you do you just watch the thing on TV? Right. No, you were no, there. I was there. I, when you so, were nominated. Oh no, not no. when you're nominated. Right. You get an email. So basically, what happens is the Academy um, of Motion Pictures has different branches. So they have a documentary branch of which I'm now a member. Ross and a voting I, member. A voting member yeah. of which you know. I think there's like 275 voting members. Ross is your partner. Ross in directed Impact. no. Ross directed um, Born into Brothels with with Santa Brisky. Oh. but it was a first. We were all first time filmmakers, so you know it was uh, none of us were voting members. <laughs> um, but the way it works is your film goes out, and your Academy of Peers shortlists you. So the top 15 films of the year get shortlisted, and then your Academy of Peers nominates you. And whittles that down from 15 to 5. Mm-hmm. And the rules have since changed. It used to be just your branch voted for who won. But now, um, this Sunday, there will be five documentaries that are up for an Academy Award. But the entire voting membership of the Academy, which is over 6,000 people around the world, gets to vote on the best documentary. Because documentaries, their platform has been raised and they're more accessible. Uh-huh. Because the the the... the the covenant that you would, you abide by if you're a voting member is you have to watch all five films or you can't vote. So it was really always the question of how do you get those five films mm-hmm. so that everybody watches them. And now yeah. with streaming and with... Via video yeah. on demand, Vimeo. Yeah, you get DVDs of every film and you have to watch them and then it's the honor code. You, yeah. know, you, you, have to, you, you shouldn't vote unless you watch all five. So you get nominated and you go to the Academy Awards. Right, which is so much fun. I'll bet. And... And then they read the name. And I remember seeing you. I don't know. Uh, and I, I, I just I, and I, I just had a vague notion of, oh, this woman is from Utah or lives here in Utah. And, yeah. and, and, and you were there on stage and just thrilled. And uh, it must have been. Well, actually, it's really funny because it was the first year Michael Moore wanted to make sure that every director could come up on stage, you know, um, all the nominees. So they tried something different. So only the directors were allowed on stage, but all the directors of all five films were allowed on, allowed, were allowed on stage. So the producers were still in the audience. But the, what you probably, what you remember is that I was panned to because I jumped up so high well, that's and screamed. What it was. <laughs> and it was so funny, like, it was so embarrassing because nobody else did that. And I got a call. There's like, you can leave and go get a glass of champagne afterwards. And I get this call from this guy named Alfred Taubman, who's since died. He, I used to work for him. As, he was a philanthropist from Michigan. And this is his message. Jesus Christ, Geraldine, you're jumping up and down like Michigan just beat Notre Dame in the Rose Bowl. Do you see anybody else jumping up and down? No, nobody's jumping up and down. Call me back. It's Alfred. Problem was, he was in prison for price fixing at Sotheby's, and I couldn't call him back. But it was the funniest. It was one of the funniest messages I've ever received in my life. Jesus Christ! God damn it! You haven't changed a bit. Jumping up and down. Jumping up and down like a crazy woman. Oh, uh, and I did. You know. So, so um, and, and that opens just open, opened doors after door after door. I would imagine. You know, it's interesting. It, it certainly does, but it doesn't necessarily make it easier to get your films financed. You know, 10 years later it does, but immediately afterwards we had people wanting to fund films that we did, and we had a couple of things that failed miserably um, and a couple of things that were winners, and that's how we actually gave birth to Impact Partners. We wanted to kind of try to standardize the investment opportunity for people 
because it's fun. It's fun for investors to put money into films and to see the cultural, you know, memes that they can become. Uh, but there, we had to learn about safeguards and negotiating contracts with directors and budgets, and you know, we 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 got our we got we got burned a couple times, and but that gave way to Impact Partners, which has been a great innovation in the field. Uh, and who's your partner in that? Dan Kogan. Dan Kogan, based in New York. His wife is the incredible documentary filmmaker Liz Garbus, who's up for an Academy Award this Sunday with uh, the Miss Simone, Nina Simone film that opened Sunday. Oh, she did that yeah. one. Yeah. yeah. I've heard, I heard a lot about that. Beautiful film. Uh, so, <clears throat> and you're going to this Academy Award. I am, because our song from The Hunting Ground that Diane Warren wrote and Lady Gaga sings is up for Best Original Song. Uh, the Hunting Ground. There's, there's a, a film that uh, you helped with and help produce you're one of the associate producers no on that, executive producers Ex- yeah. you are executive yeah producer. and, and it's an impact film we finance the film too so it's we were very involved very in involved in that one that film has gotten uh and everybody i've talked to who's seen it says it's it is uh it, 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 it will make you a very angry and you you walk away from the film going wait wait a minute why isn't somebody dealing with this situation now exactly i mean right now if you're 18 years old and you have or if you have a daughter that's 18 years old she's more likely to be raped or sexually assaulted if she goes to college than not that's a pretty shocking thing to think about it's sort of like the military with invisible war if you go into the military you're more likely to be sexually assaulted, hurt on the line of duty by one of your (laughs) colleagues than you are by the, quote, enemy or in the line of fire. So we have a cultural problem around assault and who's, you know, what is appropriate and what isn't and what consent means and what doesn't. Uh, how did, who came to you with that film? Um, yeah, Kirby Dick and Amy Ziering, we funded Invisible War. And in fact, um, after every screening of which there were over a thousand on college campuses, young women and some men came up to us and said, this happened to me and the university responded the same way as the military. You have to make a film about it. Mm-hmm. And it was this, was this film you just immediately went, yeah, yeah of course. Like, no brainer. Yeah. No brainer. Uh, you, this was last year at Sundance, yes. 2015, you had some 10 films yes. that you were involved with. Uh, that was one of them, mm-hmm. and there's there are others here that uh, people will uh, know the names of. Um, there's the hunting ground, prophets pray. Nice local story. That's a really um, incredible film about uh, uh, Mr. Warren Jeffs, who's now in prison, and and about the uh, cities down there. Uh, how did you um, get involved with that one? Did Amy, uh, Amy Berg, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, no, I actually went to Amy with the film. What happened was is that John Krakauer gave his niece the rights to develop Under the Banner of Heaven. And there were a number of people that wanted to do a documentary on Under the Banner of Heaven. But instead, they sold the rights to Ron Howard and Imagine to create as a feature film, which Lance Black from, you know, Big Love yeah. is the writer on. But Krakauer was very smart. He did it on the condition that a documentary be done, too, alongside it, to update what was happening in Colorado City, mostly because he felt indebted to having this story become the story that it became because of an amazing private detector named Sam Brower, who lives in Cedar City. Mm-hmm. And Sam wrote a book called Prophet's Prey. Ah. And so we... Under the banner of heaven, uh, uh, kind of, it, it's not all about Colorado City. No, it's about no, the, the murder Lafferty, of yeah, the Lafferty a, brothers. Yes, and, exactly. And, but, it, but it touches on all of, right. all of that Colorado City stuff. Exactly. That's real. Krakauer's a smart cookie then. He said, well, let's, let's do this, but let's, let, I want to focus on a document. He wanted to focus a yeah. documentary on and that. And his, uh, his niece was uh, going to develop and produce it. And, um, and, um, Under the banner of heaven. Yeah, and, and and that'll be a, a fictionalized account mm-hmm. of of the Lafferty yep. story, exactly. Which which could be a, a very a, if it's well done. I mean, it could be pretty powerful. Yeah, and with Ron Howard directing, I think mm-hmm. it will be well done. Uh, and so, so prophets pray. Then you took took that to Amy. I did. I said work? basically to John and Sam Brower and. Um, John's niece, look, you need a really great director. And there's about five of them in the field. There's Alex Gibney, there's Kirby Dick and Amy Ziering, there's Amy Berg, um, there's Liz Garbus that do these kind of character-driven pieces, but also with really solid investigative journalism behind them. And they reviewed everybody's work, and they liked Amy's the best. She did West of Memphis. She's done a film about Janis Joplin. She did a film 
um, called Deliver Us from Evil about pedophilia oh, um, right, with the yeah. priest. And mm-hmm. she also did a film called Open Secret about rape in Hollywood. Um, so they picked her. And she was fantastic for the job, and um, she basically read the book, went to interviews, and kind of scripted it so that it could be following Sam's work as it continues to unfold. Yeah, and anytime you use Nick Cave music, I'm, you can't go wrong as far as I'm concerned. He's amazing. Yeah. Uh, so you had that. You had The Hunting Ground. What else did you have in uh, last in 2015? So many films. Censored Voices. Mm-hmm. Chuck Norris versus Communism. This is fabulous. How to Change the World. Uh, oh, Hot Girls Wanted. Yeah. This, so that got a lot of... Uh, yeah, that was bought by Netflix, um, won a couple of Emmys. I was going to say, I've seen that on Netflix. Yeah. No, very disturbing film about, again, you know, again, you think about the open source of democracy, well, then you think about the open market of the internet and these unintended consequences where... You know, girls answer advertising to be models. They go to Florida. They're from these small towns. They've got dead-end jobs. They think they're going to be discovered. And instead, they're being forced into not even soft porn, but really, I don't think soft porn exists anymore, into making, making really, really brutally violent, disturbing films. That are pornography. Uh, and the lesson there is just stay out of Florida, right? Well, that's the no, capital. I but it, but I it is, it. I mean, the lesson is, you know, beware of wolves in sheep clothing. I mean, that these I, these too good to be true advertisements on Craigslist are too good to be true. Yeah. Right. And also stay out of Florida. Yeah. Well, that just goes without saying good as far as I'm concerned. <laughs> and I've spent way too much time in Florida, I know. Yeah, me too. Uh, so... And then this this uh, year at Sundance 2016, uh, you had the great film about the girl from Mongolia with the it's called Eagle Catcher, Eagle Huntress, Eagle, the Eagle Huntress. What else did you have this year? We had a film called Audrey and Daisy, and Notes well, on Blindness. Uh, Audrey and Daisy was that the? That's a film about high school assault and social media oh, and cyberbullying. Very important for all parents mm-hmm. to see. Um, it's the story of Audrey Potts. She's a freshman in California in Silicon Valley. Goes to her first party, high school party, after a f- football game. Gets um, inebriated uh, to the point where three boys take her up into a room, rape her. I remember this story. Then take Sharpie magic markers and write all over her body very vulgar things. Yeah. Then photograph it and put it up on the internet and a week later she committed suicide and her parents didn't even know what had happened she was picked up the next day by her mom how was the party great why do you have magic marker on your leg oh we were just messing around in the meantime this poor girl doesn't even remember what happened to her how it happened to her she's panicked out of her mind and um, a week later she hung herself You ever do really happy doc? I guess the Mongolian, yeah, the, the Eagle, Eagle Huntress, Huntress is that's pretty a pretty, wonderful. That's a pretty wonderful happy Yeah, we did a story. wonderful film called Meet the Patels about, um, you know, dating, uh, you know, the Indian culture. Oh, of that's a ra- uh, Ravi, Ravi Patel. Patel. Yeah, I yeah. love that film. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm making a wonderful film right now about um, Franca Sazani, the great Italian Vogue editor, which is really about... Photography as a visual language. Good. I mean, so good. You, yeah. Okay. You don't have to... <clears throat> Not slitting our wrists. You don't have um, to worry about your yeah. I, depression. I, I saw that you're making a film. Is it done yet about Daryl Hammond? Oh, that's my one of my favorites I'm working on right now. Yes. Um, it's not done. We actually need to raise $350,000 if any of you listeners out there want to invest in a documentary film. Um, but Daryl is this extraordinary, extraordinary creative genius. And it turns out that when he was five years old, he was... Um, severely abused by his mother in fact even stabbed and he blanked that memory out um for 40 years and the way he became an impersonator is that his mother liked to play the piano his father was kind of world war ii vet like pstd not paying attention Mm -hmm. his mother was whatever i mean god knows what made his mother have these predilections, but she was a piano player. She used to play the piano, and Daryl learned how to play the piano. But she used to do voices, and when, when Daryl started doing voices, it was the only time that he got affection and love from her. So he developed this ability to do Mickey Mouse and Donald Duck and all these impersonations, and he became kind of dragged out to entertain the family, and that's where it was safe for him. 
So that's where that genius comes from. Did uh, how does a film like that get started? Does somebody who knows Daryl Hammond yes. and talks to him they say, "Really, my God, you're kidding." Can we make a movie about this, Daryl? Yeah, so actually the director um, is a beautiful woman who's um, uh, been in recovery um, as a trauma survivor and also um, with issues around addiction and met Daryl in New York in in sort of a recovery group. And they become friends. And Daryl decided he wanted to write a play about this, so she was supporting him in the telling of his story. He wrote a book, which has been published. It said... God, if you're not up there, I'm fucked. That's the title. <laughs> Typical Daryl. Um, and then he did a one-man play that he's trying to take to Broadway. And she goes, why don't I film the making of the play? Well, now he's Mr. Donald Trump on SNL, and he's Mr. Bill Clinton. I mean, the guy is, like, debating himself, yeah. right? I yeah. mean, and it is hilarious. So he, here he is showing us through humor how our country's in trauma and then using that as a platform to also tell his own story and try to get people help that have had awful things happen to them. Uh, as I look through your uh, IMDb, I think I found one film that was n- not a documentary. Love Song? Yes. So Love Song was at Sundance this year. We this actually, year. it's part of our Game Changer film fund, which is for women directors. So when we made the film Misrepresentation, um, Stacy Smith of USC and Gina Davis of the Gina Davis Institute on Gender and the Media revealed that only 6% of films that come to the big screen are directed by women. And we thought, well, that's just not really good representation on truth and authenticity or humor. And why is that? And it turns out that women or men are graduating from film school 50-50. Men are getting jobs and getting second jobs at a much different rate than women so we thought maybe you know access to capital might be an issue we had our first film from game changer two years ago at sundance called land ho brilliant film funny uh, road trip of two divorce you know two ex-brother-in-laws that go to iceland on a road trip oh yeah, yeah we, really we, fun we interviewed those guys fun yeah and then we've made we have another one coming out a psychological thriller coming out called the invitation it will be in theaters in march um, so Love Song was the film that we had this year. Beautiful film. This is a brilliant idea. Thank you. I wish it was mine. It was. It actually was prompted by other brilliant people I mean, like Gina Davis. And <laughs> yeah, I mean, but I mean, somebody who says maybe it's just simply a matter of funding. Yeah. Who knows? I mean, we might. We're going to try it. So we raised a very small fund, and we we're funding small films under two million dollars is our sweet spot. We've done a couple that are higher, and we co-finance when with other um, film funds. But the idea was, um, let's make great films with talented women directors and prove that they have a can make a mark in the commercial marketplace. And I remember there was one of our investors from Impact that said. I think it's a really dumb idea, you know, um, quotas never work, and this is just another form of affirmative action. And I said, well, no, I don't think so, because we're never going to get to 50% with a fund that's as small as ours is. I mean, this is really a fund that's more like, um, we're going to make great films with women directors, because we can, so fuck you. If you don't like it, I don't care. We're going to do it anyway. And he goes, oh, in that case, I'll invest. (laughs) As long as it's not affirmative action, you know. You know, um, we (laughs) talked... As long as it's not that. Yeah, I mean, yeah. As long as you don't think you're going to get to parody, yeah. you know. <laughs> if you're just going to have fun and yeah. kind of give people, a little, blow oh, them so off. So you want to make art. Oh, okay. Okay, yeah. But you were. How do you, sometimes you must have young men and women say to you, how can I do what you do? Right. What do you, what do you tell them? I tell them that, you know, the best way to be a filmmaker is to be a reader, you know, and to be voracious about it, and that stories are everywhere. I mean, they're in the tabloids, they're in the New York Times, they're in the New Yorker, they're in great novels, and that you have to develop an ear for what makes a good story, and you can really only do that by reading great books and nonfiction and watching great movies. You know, one of the, I think one of the great documentary makers, of course, is Werner Herzog. Oh, my God. You know, yes, and and he does exactly that. Oh doesn't yeah, he's he? voracious. Here's a story in the newspaper. I think would make an interest, and he makes, he just takes a newspaper story and makes a damn. Errol movie Morris about does it. the same thing. Yeah, Errol yeah. Morris does the same thing. Yeah, um, uh, you came to Utah um, uh, by marriage. Yes, 
Um, uh, your husband, is he from here or did he yes. just get a job here? born and raised. Born and raised in Utah. Mm-hmm. And you, so you get married and you say, okay, we'll move to Utah. Right. And leave the East Coast behind. Yeah. Um, and immediately throw yourself into, um, you know, Sundance Film Festival. Did you start out just volunteering or did yeah. you? Yeah. No, I've never been in a paid position or a board position. I was like on an advisory board. With Sundance. But no, I, I came here and, and uh, as a young mother, um, so my life had changed, and I decided to, you know, I wasn't going to just take a job for the sake of a job, so I got involved with a lot of boards just to learn how the community worked. Found it an astonishing place. I mean, so many bright, amazing people with great, that living intentionally, you know, mm-hmm. you know, made a decision to be here. And I found that if you had a good idea, people would back it. So... Um, you know, I, I got involved with filmmaking, as I said, because I was at Sundance watching this, you know, platform be developed for documentary filmmakers. And then at the same time, Andy Levine, who I grew up with and actually used to be his babysitter, and he was out here at film school and he wanted to write. He wanted, you know, all the all the kids in college now, instead of writing the great American novel, want to write the great American yeah. screenplay. I was like, Andy, why do you want to write a screenplay? You're dyslexic. It's like really hard for you to. <laughs> to write you're such a producer like you're such a you know, he's like one of these kids that can do anything and he's like well i want to be a i want to be a director and i said well let's direct a documentary you know and then we came up with this idea because i had told him a story about i was on the board of the reebok human rights foundation and i saw this young woman get an award for blowing the whistle on sex tourism between europe the european parliament and thailand and i just could not believe that sex slavery existed was, yeah. so let's go see what it looks like so that's kind of that's how it got invented, first, yeah. yeah. And and so so I mean so there there's the there's the answer to the question. How do you do what you do? That's also part of the answer to the question, other than read. But yeah. it's also get involved in the community around you. Yeah. And um, and then you found uh, you started the Utah Film Center. That's right. Why why did you do that? Well, as documentaries were getting more um, moral and cultural currency at Sundance. Sundance was also going through this huge success, you know, where it was getting harder and harder for locals to get tickets. And all these Park City second homeowners that were used to being able to buy express passes at the Olympics couldn't understand why they couldn't get tickets. And we started doing salons with documentary filmmakers. And people were like, this is exciting. This form is amazing. You know, let's, you know, let's do this year round for Utah audiences. And at the time, there was a new director at Sundance named um, Ken Brecker, and he was really charged to kind of, you know, look at across platforms. Everybody knew about the Sundance Film Festival, but nobody knew about the labs. And the labs are the secret sauce of Sundance. It's, It's where everything gets developed. It's where art happens. And so they were trying to figure out a way to monetize their sponsorships over their portfolio of nonprofit endeavors. So they didn't want to take on a new project while they were doing that, which I understand. So um, Nicole Guillaume at the time had been running the Sundance Film Festival. She um, left as part of this transition, and um, two of our donors, one from Park City and um, Lon Watson from the Eccles Foundation said, well, you know what? If Sundance isn't going to do it, why don't you guys do it? So it was, and again, it was like default. You know, it was kind of like, yeah. okay. Mm-hmm. So we started out doing one screening a month, and now we do four a week. Um, if people, and, and also three, you do three festivals a year. Yes. The Tumbleweeds Film Festival. Damn these heels. Uh, uh, Tumbleweeds is for, uh, mainly for kids. Yep. Um, films for and by children. Uh, Damn These Heels, which is a uh, LGBT-oriented festival. Mm -hmm. And then The Tilt Shift, which is the... Kind of a new addition, isn't it? Yeah, it's a high school festival. It's it's really made. Um, it was invented by Patrick Hubley and Rick Ray of Shift um, and Spy Hop to sort of give uh, you know, teenagers the opportunity to learn how to program, how to produce, how to develop, how to promote a festival, and also um, curate content made by their peers and made for their peers. Uh, it's. Uh uh, I haven't seen any of the tilt shift ones yet, but uh, I know Rick Ray. From, I used to be on the board of Spy Hop. That's an amazing ago. organization. Yeah, good, good people. And Rick Ray is a great, uh, great, great Visionary. individual. Mm. Yeah, I uh, went, I went to Spy Hop classes for years as a kid. Yeah, like every summer. Didn't I make you go? Was no, that? no. Or was it your mother that made you go? Well, my mom signed me up. I was seven. I what? 
What am I? I just want to take credit for something that turned out good with you. But I guess. Well, good luck. <laughs> okay, um, Geraldine Dreyfus. Uh, if um, uh, people are watching the Academy Awards uh, this Sunday, uh, they may see you there. Jump up out of your seat. Uh, yeah, I probably. I mean, as much as I'd like to think that I'll control myself when Lady Gaga and Diane Warren go down, well, I'll probably be jumping out of my seat after Lady Gaga sings the song because yeah. she's been asked to sing "Till It Happens to You," and I don't. I hope I'm not like revealing something I'm not supposed to. But the 25 subjects of our film, the survivors in our film, will be on stage with her, which will be very moving. Yeah, and um, they're in rehearsals right now. Um, and I have no idea what they're going to do, but I know it's going to be beautiful if Lady Gaga has anything to do and with it. Diane Warren's wrote the song. She's amazing. Yeah. How many songs has she written? Yeah. Yeah. She's incredible. Yeah. Uh, we'll be looking for you at the Academy Awards. Uh, also, people are interested in uh, getting involved with the um, Utah Film Center. Center and finding out what screenings you do. How do they do that? They just go online to the utahfilmcenter.org. We have an amazing screening tomorrow night, Sonita, which won the Grand Jury Award at Sundance and the Audience Award. And one of the little-known secrets about that film is that Sonita actually lives in Utah. She's at Wasatch Academy, so she'll be there for the q and I've been trying to get a hold of her to get her on this uh, yeah. on this yeah. podcast and just talk with her for a while. It would be great. I'm sure she'd love to do that. And she has a story, I'm sure, to tell. An amazing story. Yeah. Uh, so that's uh, tomorrow, that's Tuesday night at so, the library, seven p.m. Uh, and go to just just Google Utah Film Center, and you'll see when all the screenings are and everything. Uh, it's been a pleasure to talk to you. Uh, me too. What a great idea! Have lunch, have yeah. a conversation. Can't go wrong. Yeah, you eat some food and have a little talk. I love it. Uh, it's Geraldine Dreyfus. Uh, look for her at the Academy Awards, and um, best of luck. Oh, and if the song wins, does that mean you get another statue? Well, I won't because I'm not nominated. Only the nominees get okay. the statues, but I'll get to go to the Vanity Fair party with Lady Gaga. Oh, that's better yeah. than a statue. Yeah. Are you kidding? <laughs> yeah. Well, congratulations. Thank All you. Right. That's it. Uh, thanks to 50 West for uh, giving us some good food. I had the cob salad. It's delicious. The mm-hmm. soup is good. Please uh, patronize us. 50 West Broadway is where we are, uh, the club at 50 West. And um, remember, As always, if you're pouring the drinks, make mine a double.